Let's take your Bible this morning and turn to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. True, true, true. As we continue our study through the book of Joel. Our text this morning will be verses 18 to 27. Joel 2, 18 to 27. We're going to be more than four weeks in Joel, so just announce that up front. <laughs> Listen to the inspired word of God this morning. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove the northern army far from you, and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land, and his vanguard into the eastern sea, and his rear guard into the western sea. And its stench will rise, and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. Do not fear, O land, rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, for the, for the tree has borne its fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you for the years that the stormy locust has eaten, the creeping locust, and the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord, the Lord your God, who has dwelt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. And my people will never be put to shame. Let's pray before we go through our text this morning. Father in heaven, again we pray this morning as we go through this text, that your Holy Spirit will be the teacher. We again pray that as we go through the truths of this, that you will impress them upon our hearts, and that we will never lose sight of the fact that we have a God who is zealous for his people, and a God who promises to restore when repentance is given. So I pray this morning that we would go away again encouraged that we too have a bountiful future because of your zealousness for us. We pray that you will in our service this morning, I pray. Now we've been going through the book of Joel, and we've been going at a mighty clip. And I wanted to slow down just a little bit so that I can make it hopefully a little bit clearer than I've been so far. 
And so as we've been going through the book of Joel, we, we went through chapter 1. And chapter 1 is really a description of a literal plague of locusts that have gone through the nation of Israel. They have come on the land that is actually the land of Judah. They are, they are gnawing locusts, and they have really destroyed the land. They've destroyed any ability to worship because they've destroyed all the things that are necessary for worship, the wine. They've destroyed the wheat. They've cut off really anything that's necessary to live. In fact, the land looks like it's been burnt. The trees are splintered, stripped bare, cast away, they become white. Everything, even the, the niceties of life, pomegranate, the apple tree, all of these fancy fruits are gone. There's nothing left for them to eat, even. And in light of that, there's a call to turn to God and to seek Him out. To gird themselves with sackcloth and seek God. Because there's no ability now in Israel to worship God. The grain offering and the drink offering are withheld. And so they are called to call the people together and to cry out to the Lord. And in that, in that present circumstances, he points to, a, to something that is yet future. He says, what's taking place, this judgment of God that is upon you, this has been brought by me. I am, I am the head of this army that is coming against you. He says, there's another day of the Lord to come. There's, a, there's another time to come. For the day of the Lord is near. There's, there's a judgment in the future that is coming. And then we talked about the, the idea of near, meaning that is imminent. It could come at any time. Not necessarily near in time or near in space, but that it could happen at any time. And so he alludes to a greater day of judgment. There's a day of judgment on Israel today, but there's going to be another day of destruction coming from the Almighty. In order to avoid that day, and in order for this day, they must turn to the Lord. And so the land suffers, the animals suffer, the people suffer. So even the prophet himself turns and cries out to, to the Lord, to you, O Lord, I cry. To you, I cry. I don't, I'm turning to you because this locust plague is on us and has destroyed our land. And there's a coming day of judgment, and I don't want to be under that judgment either. So he cries. Well, chapter 2 then begins this another section where he begins to now point towards that day of the Lord that is to come. And he does it in language where he is, we would, I don't know how to even describe it, it's like double speak. And I would say he is speaking in one way, in a sense, where he's speaking of locust, and yet he's using language that makes it clear that there's more behind it. I don't know if you've ever been in other cultures where if your dog ran over to their yard, they would come over to you and they would say, your dog is running onto our property. And we would really, really hate for your dog to get hurt on our property. 
and we're just thinking of you and your dog, and it's just not safe on our property. And we want to make sure that your dog survives, and so it would be best if you, if you could just keep him on your land, because we can't guarantee his safety. Now, if that's your farmer neighbor, this is what he's saying. Keep your dog off my property, because if he comes back on my property, I will shoot him, and I will bury him, and you will never see him again. <laughs> right? So there's, there's a kind of a, a depth to what he's saying, and he's using language in, in one sense that makes it clear that he, your dog is unsafe and he's going to kill it, and yet in one sense, it just sounds like he's talking about the safety of your dog. And in many ways, this is what Joel is doing here. He is, he is speaking, in, he's speaking about the locust plague with language that's clear that there's something bigger beyond the locust plague that he's talking about. And so though he speaks in language that seems in many ways like the locust, he's speaking in a language that's speaking of something else. In other words, he's pointing to a greater reality that the day of the Lord is coming. There's coming a time where the Lord will, in the future, will bring judgment. And he says, for the day, the day of the Lord is coming, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains, so is a great and mighty people that have never been anything like it, nor will there anything be like it to the years of many generations. And he says, in essence, you could, in one way, you could say the locust plague is coming and it's, and it's gloom and it's covering the sun and everything's being darkened. And yet the language is greater than that of a locust plague. And it's picked up by many others in Scripture to point to a time where judgment will come from God Himself and He will judge the nations and He will judge a disobedient Israel and there will be darkness and gloom and the luminaries will no longer give their light. And so as he goes through this chapter, he continues to paint, as it were, pictures of the locusts that also apply to a greater time of the day of the Lord to come. And so as he, as he transitions from the locusts to focus completely on the day of the Lord, he brings this, this tension in this passage between what is, what is actual and what will come. As he points to a day of the Lord that is coming, that hasn't come, but that will come. And then in light of that, he calls them to repentance. He calls them to repentance and return to God. And he makes it clear in verse 11 that it is him that is bringing, he is bringing the army against them. He's the one who will bring judgment against them. The great day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? And the question to that answer is no one. He says, yet even now the Lord, return to me with all your heart, and with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, and he is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and relenting in evil. And so he says, turn back to God before you are under the judgment of the day of the Lord until that is focused on you. Repent. Turn to God. Turn with your heart. Don't just turn and come with ceremonies, but come and rend your heart. Be broken for your sin against the holy God. 
This is not an outward show, but an inward, an inward turning to Him, a brokenness of sin that ultimately will be revealed in outward weeping and fasting in the Lord. And He says, "Do this because guess this. Look at the character of God. He's gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, relenting to do evil. Or the idea there is to do, to bring harm to you. And the idea is that He." Is bringing judgment on those who are disobedient. He says, who, not, who knows whether he will not return? In other words, from the human perspective, maybe he will take even this away. And so there's a call to call the, the nation of Israel together to assemble the elders and gather them, everyone, no exceptions, and to cry out to God in And ultimately, the call of repentance here ends with a call to understand that it is God's glory that is at stake, because it is His people who are a byword among the nation, who are His inheritance, who are a reproach. And God will, is called now to evoke and come and save them for His glory, for His character's sake. So there is this looming day of the Lord that is coming, a time in the future when God will pour out his wrath on those who are against him, but he will also come in reward for those who are his. And so there is this kind of dual nature to the day of the Lord. But first of all, there will be judgment, and then there will be those who he will reward who are his. It's spoken of many times in Scripture over and over again. Many times here in the book of Joel, this day that is coming, Daniel refers to it as, as uh, the 70th week that is coming. It's referred to Jacob's trouble. There is a time coming where the Lord will pour out his judgment. And so as we come to our text this morning, then in light of that, there's, there's a gap between verses 17 and 18, and there's an assumption of something that takes place. There's an assumption that there is repentance that has taken place. There's an assumption that there is repentance, and therefore the Lord is now responding to the repentant. He says, then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. Why would God all of a sudden be zealous for his land and zealous for his people unless there was a time where there will be a time of repentance that has taken place? Now there are some who would say that this is actually God's response here to, to the local, to a repentance of Israel, a national repentance of Israel and a restoration of the land to them. They would say, this is, they, this is God beginning to, to respond. I will be zealous. In other words, he's starting to. Some say this is a past tense, which means he's already responding as they begin to repent, or they have repented. But I would suggest to you that as this book has been, been going along, that we have been moving from the time of the locust to a time in the future to the day of the Lord. And that there are some phrases that continue to go on. He continues to talk about the day of the Lord. And then he, he begins 
And he talks and makes phrases like this in chapter 26. Then my people will never be put to shame. Then my people will never be put to shame. And it would seem that he has now transported us, not just from to a point where they are repenting as a nation from this locust plague, but into a future national repentance of Israel. Now we actually have no record, nothing in, recorded in scripture or in history that Israel actually did a national repentance here. Now you, we are, that is an argument for silence, maybe they did. We don't know that. But it would seem that now he has moved with all of his future tenses to a time in the future where there has been a national repentance of Israel and God is now fulfilling his promises to Israel of, of prosperity as he places them in the land. And he will now give them, in the next three sections of the scripture, he will restore them to materially, he will restore them spiritually, and in the last section, he will restore them nationally as he has promised them. So this assumed repentance then takes place in, in that day of the Lord when the Lord has judged them and they turn to him. There's that, the scripture says that they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn says that all Israel will be saved and there will be a time where they will repent and they will turn. And when that takes place, then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. Zealousness has the idea of someone who becomes red or flushed with passion or deep emotion as a husband for his wife. And it says, so Yahweh is for his people and for his land. He has a passion for them. He has a jealousy, a zealousness for them. It depicts a righteous, jealous ardor of a husband would have for his wife. And God is, in, in essence, saying to Israel, you are, you are my bride. I am, the, you are my, I am your husband. And I have a zealousness for you. Very early on in Exodus 20, verse 5, it says, You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In other words, he wants to be worshipped. He wants right relationship with them. And the land and the people are tied together. The land was given to Israel by God, and they are his people who sit in that land. So he says, I have zealous, because I have pity, encompass the idea of sparing one from difficulty, generally motivated out of heart of compassion and emotion. That same term that was used when Potiphar's daughter saw Moses. She had opened it and saw the child, and she had what? Pity. Pity on Moses. Ezekiel 16.5 says, No, I looked with pity on you to do anything of the things for you. The idea is no one did, but Yahweh 
has a pity for his people and for his land. And Israel now is, is being zealously sought and having pity on them by God. Yahweh is now turning for them because they have repented and are now in right relationship with him. And so the answer to the question, will God relent? Will God relent when there is proper repentance is answered? He will relent and he will restore. So here is Israel again with the land. It's more than territory. The Old Testament speaks of a place of God's revelation and of a special influence. Though Yahweh owned all the lands, there's a special influence that God has in his land. There's a close connection because this land has been covenanted in the Abrahamic covenant to be given to his seed forever. And so God is not only zealous for his to defend his own rights, but he's zealous and zealous for his own glory, but for the rights of his people and the land that he's planted them in. Because ultimately their success and their failure will ultimately dis, will, will demonstrate his glory to the world. And so when the nation turns. The Lord will be zealous for his land and he will pity on his people. It says, The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them. And so the Lord will answer. He will speak. When there's that natural response, now Yahweh himself will speak. And he says, I'm going to send you new grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied with them in full. In other words, there's going to come a time when I restore you to the land, that the land is now going to give you back the things that are necessary. You will again have wine and oil and grain. These will be a demonstration of my blessing on you and a demonstration of my, of my favor. Amos 9 talks about this. Amos 9, 13 and 14. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of the grapes whom he sows seeds. When the mountain drips, will drip sweet wine and the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel and they will rebuild the new cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. There's coming a time when the Lord restores Israel at the day of the Lord where he will plant them in their land and this is this is what will take place. In fact, the idea here is he's going to bless them so much that the reapers are going to overcome the sowers. They're just going to overlap. There's going to be so much going on. Can you imagine as a farmer having this problem where your crops are coming on so fast that you can't, 
you can't plant before, and, and they're overlapping because there's just too much. It's a good problem to have. And so he says, this is what is going to take place. There's going to be this prosperity that I will give back to the land. And he says, in verse, he says, then I will, I will what? I, you will be satisfied with them. And I will never again make you approach among nations. You will be satisfied. In other words, you will have all that you need. You will be satisfied in full. There will be nothing left that you need. There's nothing more that you could desire. He says, I promise this for you as I restore you to this land. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. When we last saw in this chapter, there was the cry, do not make your inheritance a reproach and a byword among the nations. Israel was seen as being overrun and being judged by God, and their God was weak because he couldn't protect them. And they were a reproach. They were a byword. People were using their names as an epitaph. They were making fun of them. They were, they were, again, ridiculing them. And here he says, in unequivocal language, I will never again make you a, a reproach among the nations. Never again will you be, will people look at you and say, where is their God? Who are they? Their God is weak. They were misguided. And he says, I will you will never again make a, be a reproach among the nations. If we're going to argue that this happened historically, then we're going to have to explain how is it that just shortly after this, the Assyrian, Assyrians came and took northern Israel. And then the Babylonians came and took southern Israel into captivity. And then Israel was eventually restored into their land. And they were, they were subjugated to the Romans, never had independence, were a thorn in the Roman side, only to again be what? Cast out of their own land. By 70 AD, Jerusalem is overrun, and the Jews are now scattered among the nations and have been a reproach among the nations ever since. Can you, can you go through a time where you don't see anti-Semitism? Do you see a time where Israel is not almost like the weather being of, of, of events? Right? It's interesting that even in, in 1972, Zionism was declared to be racist. Form of racism was declared a form of racism and racial discrimination. 72 of the nations voted against it, 35 against, 35 two abstentions, and three absences. Right? The existence of Israel to them was an offense. We only need to look as far as World War II, right?
And he says, I will never make you a reproach among the nations. I would understand that this is going to be fulfilled when Christ comes again at the end of the tribulation, as he sets up his millennial kingdom, Israel will be placed in the land and they will never, ever again be displaced. They will never again be made a reproach. As we read this morning, Ezekiel 34, 23, I will appoint over them a single shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them and he will tend them himself and he will be their shepherd. I will establish them for the only planting place, and they will not again be victims of famine, and they will not endure the insults of nations anymore, verse 29. Ezekiel 36, 15, I will not let your, you hear insults from the nations anymore, nor will you bear disgrace from the peoples any longer, nor will you cause your nation to stumble any longer, declares the Lord. Israel will no longer be a byword. They will no longer be approached. The very fact of their prosperity will declare God's blessing and their strength is that there is a God in Israel. As the descendant David, Jesus Christ, rules over them. Then he says, but I will remove the northern army from you, and I will drive it into a parched, desolate land, its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rear guard into the western sea, and its stench will arise, its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. And again, some have said, well, this is the locust, this is the locust, they have come, and they have come into the land and God drove them out with the wind. But we would say this, first of all, locusts have never been known to come from the north, they come from the southeast, they don't come from the lands of the north, and some people will say that's okay because locusts just represent invading armies. But the language here is, is literally this, but the northerner I shall drive far away from you, so he's not talking about a direction of attack, he's talking about where the attackers live. And he says, the northerner I will drive away from you. Now the word army here is added by the translators, which I just happen to agree with this time, so that's good. But the idea here is there's going to be an army that comes from the north that will invade Israel. And it will come down against Israel. And, and it says that God, I will drive it into the parched land and the desolate land, its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rear guard into the western sea. Ezekiel speaks of, of a northern army coming against Israel in the future. You will come from your places out of the remote parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses in the great assembly of a mighty army. Ezekiel 39.2 And I will turn you around, drive you on, take up you up from the remotest parts of the north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. 
There's this northern army that is spoken about, God, that will come down against Israel and will invade the land. And in that day, the Lord will stand up for Israel and he will defend them. It says, Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, half the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, and when he fights on as, as when he fights on the day of battle. And that day his people stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem in the east, and the Mount of Olives which will split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half the mountains will move toward the north and the other half towards the south. You will flee to the valley of my mountains. There's coming a time where Jesus Christ will come back and he will fight on Israel's behalf. As he comes back at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, as those nations have come down in the day of the Lord to plunder Israel, as he has brought them down in judgment on Israel, it says that God then will turn and I will I will drive them into a parched land. I will drive that those nations out. I will destroy them. It's vanguard, which is the, 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 the people that go before the army will be driven into the eastern sea. And then which is the Mediterranean, which is the Dead Sea. Yeah, the sea on the east. It says the rear guard will be going into the western sea, which is the Mediterranean Sea. I will drive them into the seas, and its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up. Now, if, that, if this was referring to locusts, you can certainly see that if you had four feet of locusts laying on the beach, it would smell. If it's referring to the army, and I believe it is. You can imagine if this army has come against from all around the world, has come against Israel. And God has wiped them out, how many bodies there would be laying on the ground and the smell that would come. The stench will rise up. Its, it's stench will arise and its foul smell will come. It says that they will then be what? They will end up on that day, God will give, I will give God a burial ground there in Israel, the valley of those who pass to the east of the sea, and will block it off for those who have passed by. So then when I bury God, there will be a, all his horde, and they will call it the valley of Hamilton. For seven months, the house of Israel will bury them in order to cleanse the land. For seven months, they're going to be burying bodies. Now, do you know anything about how hot it is in the Middle East? And there's bodies laying out there, and you've got seven months to bury them. There's going to be a stench. But I don't think that's the only stench that he's talking about. Because I think there's a, a deeper stench that is coming. He says, for it has done great things. Explanation. There's also a stench that is going into the nostrils of God because of what these armies have done against his chosen people. There's a stench that's rising up, for it has done great things. As the locust devastated the land, 
So this army that has come against Israel has devastated the land. It has done great things. And the idea here is the idea of being lifted up. The idea of arrogance. In a high-handed manner. And it has reached God's nostrils. It's like what happened with the children of Israel in Exodus. Now the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. In other words, the, because of the persecution of Israel in Egypt, God heard. And he says, this is reaching me. I have, I have seen this. So the Lord is responding here to the repentance of Israel and says, I will be zealous for you. I have pity on you. I will, I will answer you. I will restore the material blessings to you. I will restore blessings of worship to you. And you will be fully satisfied. And I, you will never again be a reproach among the nations. I will plant you in your land. I will remove any of the invaders Then he begins to list the material blessings that will come and the restoration that he will, he will give them. After, after responding that he will respond to them, he now in detail tells us the material blessings that he will restore to Israel. And he begins here, do not fear, O land. And he says, do not fear, beasts, and rejoice, O sons of Zion. And he goes exactly with what he has done before. You could say this is a reversal of chapter one, where he, where the land is barren, where the beasts are cry out because there is no food and there is no joy has been taken from them because there is no harvest, there is no ability to rejoice, and it is gone. And so he speaks, "Do not fear, O land." And again, he speaks as if he personifies the land here. And he says, do not fear, O land. The idea here is stop being afraid. He's stopping an action that's already been there. Stop being afraid. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because the Lord is restoring the land. He says, I'm going, for the Lord has done great things. Now in contrast to verse, and almost in contrast to verse 19, guess what? The bad army might have done great things. But God is doing even greater things. He is doing the mighty things and it is his omnipotence and his power that will be displayed as he restores the material blessings. He says, do not fear beasts of the field. And again, stop being afraid. There's no longer a need for you to be afraid because you cannot feed yourselves. He says, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. For the tree has borne its fruit, the fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. There's coming a time when the land will be fully restored, where it will be like the Garden of Eden, it will be overflowing. It will be giving back more than it has ever before. He says, guess what? The animals no longer need to cry out. Because the, the God is restoring as it should be. There will be a time, like we read before, where the, where the 
the land will be overflowing and there will be a time when the reaper will overcome the sower. There will be a time when the land drips with sweet wine. And so he says, don't fear a lamb. Don't fear beasts. God is restoring the land. Oh, rejoice, O sons of Zion. Now he speaks here again to the Israelites. I'm Rejoice. There is joy to have again. And be glad in your God. In, in the Lord your God. And again, he speaks of a personal God here. He is restoring them to himself. He has, he has called them to himself. He says, be glad in the Lord, your God. Again, he, he calls them to rejoice in Yahweh's provision because he is not just a God, he is their God. Be glad in the Lord. Why be glad? For he has given you the early rain for your vindication. Why should they rejoice? Why do they be glad in the Lord? For he has given them early rain for your vindication. The idea is there for your righteousness. In other words, he's saying this. Because you're getting rain indicates that God, you are righteous in a righteous standing before God. In other words, this vindicates you. All the nations said that God was against you, that God couldn't protect you. But this demonstrates to the world and to yourself that you are in right relationship with me. And this again really reflects what God had promised Israel in Deuteronomy. It shall come about that if you listen and are, oh, listen obediently to my commandments, which I command in you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. That he will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early and the late rain, that you may gather your grain and your new wine and your oil. You will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Be aware that your hearts are not deceived, and that you do not turn away and serve other gods, for the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. So again, there is, there is this understanding, and Israel would understand this concept that in obedience to God comes blessing. In obedience to God comes blessing. And so God is now vindicating them. He is showing them that he is righteous and that they are right before him. And he will pour down for you the rain, the early and the latter rains. Early rains in, in October, December helped prepare the land for planting. Later rains came in March and April around the harvest for the crops to fill out. And he says, I'm bringing, restoring to you as you are in the land, this rain that will bring this land back to life, that will bring the pasture back to life, that will cause the land to produce. He says, rejoice because the threshing floors will be full of grain. Be glad in your Lord. Praise the Lord for what? Because your threshing floors will be full of grain and your vats will overflow with new wine and oil. And again, you see the threshing floor is where you beat out the wheat in order to get the wheat away from the, the rest of the stock. And, the, and he says, your, your, your threshing floors will be full and the vats where they took the grapes and they crushed them to get wine, and ultimately they will be overflowing with new wine and oil. 
whether they took grapes, whether they took figs, either way, they're going to be overflowing. There will be more than enough. There will be more than enough. And then he says in verse 25, Then I will make up, up to you for the years that the storm of locusts has eaten, the creeping locusts, the stripping locusts, the, the gnawing locusts, my great army which I send among you. And he says, rejoice in your Lord, because guess what? I'm going to restore everything that you lost. Everything that you lost in the time of judgment will be restored to you. Now that's quite a statement. I will restore to you everything that you have lost. In other words, it will be as if you had prosperity for the whole time. That's how much I'm going to give to you. I'm going to restore this to you. Now, we can argue whether this is speaking specifically of just the, of, of the, of the years, literally for the years, whether that means the locust came for several years, or there were several years of damage, or whether He's speaking here in, in a poetic way and saying, when the, when the army that has come during the great day of the Lord has ravished your land, I will make up for it. But he says, I, I will make up for it. I will make up for that time. And I think there's a principle here for us to recognize. That God does everything in his timing. He does judgment. He brings blessings. And there's a tendency for us to bemoan and even in our own lives that somehow that we have wasted time. That we came to the Lord late. And yet God says, guess what? I will make up for those years. I will make up for those. I will, I will make up for those. And I think there's a principle for us to grasp onto that, guess what? There's still time for blessings. And God can make up for those years. And there are many dear saints who were saved late and have burned out serving the Lord Jesus Christ. This word I will make up is a legal term, depicting restitution for damages paid to a party who was wronged or suffered. And in essence, it was, it was used in, in the law. If you took an animal's life, you had to make it good. That word you had to read, you, you had to make it right. And God is saying here to Israel, even though you're the guilty party, this, even though you're the guilty party, I'm going to restore it to you. I'm going to restore you. I'm, I'm going to be obligated to make up those years to you, even though you're the guilty party. I don't know about you, but I'm the guilty party, right? And God says, I will, I, will make, I will make this up. If you are in obedience to me, if you repent and turn to me, I will make this up. You, they will rejoice in their Lord 
words, you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. In other words, you will have enough to eat. Enough that you will be eating enough that it will bring satisfaction. Now, I found that hard to swallow. But the idea here is what? That there's going to be plenty to eat and he will continue to satisfy. He will continue to give. the point where there is, you will be full, you will be satisfied, you will desire nothing more. You will have abundance. A continual abundance and continual satisfaction is the idea. You will be continually, continually eating continually satisfied as more requires. And the natural response should be to all of the blessings and praise the name of the Lord your God. You will have plenty. The natural response will be what you will praise the name of your Lord. Fitting response to what God has done for us that we should praise his name Again, the idea here is you, you, you are praised by the name of the Lord. Again, we're speaking of Yahweh, identifying him with his works for his people, who has dealt wondrously with you, miraculously, surpassing or in an extraordinary way to treat wonderfully. God has provided a way back, he has given Blessings so undeserved. He's dealt graciously with you. Then the people will never be put to shame. And again, he reiterates that same phrase again. Never, ever, at any time will they be put to shame. They will never again have to face ridicule. They will never again be put down. They will never be under the judgment of God. Then he says in verse 27, Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel. In other words, because of the blessings that have been given to you, you will know that I am, I am dwelling with you. There will be no doubt that I am in your midst. And this was, again, from Israel's history. They knew that when God, when there was blessings and, and that they were obedient that God was in their midst. He says, Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 5 6, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so there, there's a call here that Israel will know that I am in the midst of Egypt. Thus you will know I am there. In other words, these blessings indicate that my blessing is with you and I will be with you. Ezekiel 37, 26. I will make a covenant of peace with them and it will be an everlasting covenant with them and I will place them and multiply them and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them. 
and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, whose sanctuary is in their midst forever. Zephaniah, the Lord has taken away judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no longer. And God is saying to Israel, I am going to be in your midst when you are back in the land and you are prospering. And I have driven out your enemies. You will prosper in this land and this is what I will give to you. I will store all the material things that you have lost. And you will know that I am with you and I will dwell with you. And I will be in your midst. In other words, you will recognize that I am the one true God. I am the God of Israel. I am the God of your forefathers. And there is no other God. Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known. And so God claims, says, listen, I am your God. There is no other God. And I will people will never be put to shame. And he again repeats this phrase. My people will never, ever, ever, at any time be put to shame. Now he's been speaking here to Joel of a time in the future that God will stand, will fight for Israel in that day of the Lord. He will place them back in their land and he will give them material prosperity. And you might at this point say, Pastor, you have gone on a long time. You've done a lot of details. And I have no idea what that has to do with me. Well, I'm going to tell you what it has to do with you. Number one, If Israel is going to be placed back in the land at the time that Jesus Christ sets up the millennial kingdom, you're going to be there. This is your future too. Jesus says he will return with his holy ones. He will return with his saints to rule. So the good news is, is that you're going to actually enjoy the blessings that are given to Israel here because you will be there. So this is your future. Number two, the same God who was faithful to his covenant promises to Israel is the same God who made promises to you. And if he made promises to Israel and he was zealous and he was pitiful on them, will he not be the same for you? Will he, not, will he not keep you and will not he keep the promises that he made to you? Because if we get here a glimpse of God's covenant love, a love that he's placed upon you in Jesus Christ, 
And this same God who is zealous to make sure that he keeps his promises and he loves his people will be the same God who will keep you and be zealous for you to the end. And when he says he will grant you salvation, and when he says he's coming back for you, and when he says he's going to place you in heaven and give you a new body, if he's this zealous for Israel, how much more will he be zealous for us? And we have that to look forward to. Not only do we get to share in the blessings of Israel, but we get to worship Israel's God. And so we are called here this morning to look at who God is, and to see his character, that he is first zealous for his glory, and then he is zealous for his land and pitiful to his people. And therefore, your salvation is ultimately dependent upon God's blood. In other words, he will glorify himself in your salvation. Now I'm going to throw one more thing at you. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, I'm going to let you turn to the second I normally don't get you to look at other pieces of scripture because then you don't come back. Mercy. 
for God shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to, to all. Oh, the depths of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his commandments and unfathomable his ways. In other words, there, there needs to be a restoration of Israel for you to ultimately receive your salvation. If Israel does not, does not turn to their Messiah, your salvation will And so he says, it's important. It's important that God is what? Zealous for his land and zealous for his people. Because if he is not zealous and if he does not keep his promises and he does not do what he says, then you have no hope for your salvation because God is not a God that keeps God. And so is it relevant? Is it relevant that God is going to restore Israel to the land? Because it demonstrates to us the character of God and that he keeps his word and that he's true to what he says. And we can take comfort in this because we ultimately will be what? Able to claim the promises that God has made to us. Oh, we serve a wonderful God. Thank you for that, and we look forward to that time. And may we worship.